Well, the passage this morning, the two texts we're looking at come from Luke chapter 8 and Luke chapter 9. You can find them in your bulletins or follow along in your own Bibles. Beginning in Luke chapter 8, verse 26. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes. He had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him, said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. They begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter there, so he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake, and they were drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled, and they told it in the city and in the country. Then the people went out to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and he returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Chapter 9, beginning in verse 37. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg to you, look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and to bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. Would you please be seated? And would you join me in prayer? Father in heaven, we thank you for this passage, these two passages from the 8th and ninth chapter of this Gospel of Luke. We confess to you, Lord God, that these things are strange and peculiar to us. And so we ask as we look at this passage that you would guide our hearts, that you would give clarity to our minds, that you would strengthen us in our faith, 
that you would show us more of your majesty and your glory, that you would move us to confession and repentance, that we would have our faith in you strengthened, that you would help our unbelief. We ask, Lord God, that you would do this for your glory. In the name of Jesus Christ, we ask all of these things. Amen. Well, this morning we are doing the same thing as last week. We have two particular passages from two separate chapters. And you could probably see as you heard these passages read aloud that the tie that binds these passages are the demons in both passages. The, the, the demon possession that we witness in the 8th and ninth chapter. These two texts deal with spiritual beings, these demons. Now, I have to admit to you this morning that uh, from an early age, my only understanding of spiritual beings came from the television show, Unsolved Mysteries. Some of you have seen the television show, I'm sure. It's a kind of peculiar thought, at least for me in my house. We didn't watch much television, but for some reason, this was one particular show we watched regularly. If you remember the show, the host would begin the show and he would say, these are real mysteries. This is not a news broadcast. And maybe you can help solve an unsolved mystery. Each episode would deal with a disappearance or some strange activity. And if you remember the show, probably once every five or six episodes, there'd be something like a a demon possession, some peculiar spirit spiritual activity that couldn't be explained and it would be recreated on the show. That is really my early introduction to spiritual beings. And so as we begin this morning, I have to admit to you, I don't know very much about these things. But I think the way we all have to approach these passages is to mutually admit we don't understand very much about these things. One pastor who was preaching on a similar text from the Gospel of Mark, began by telling his congregation this. He said, I don't know much about demons. I've read some books about people who say they know much about demons, and they don't know much about demons. As we approach the passage this morning, we must admit that the Lord God has revealed to us very little concerning the world of angels and of demons, of principalities and of power. And yet, we see that He has revealed something to us. We see that He has recorded these events for us, for the church. And so we must together try to discern what they mean for us. What we're to take away as the people of God. And so three very uh, important, though kind of easy to understand points about the passage this morning. We'll begin with the first one. And it is simply this, that there is indeed a spiritual reality. Okay? I think these two texts reveal this. There, there is indeed a spiritual reality. Now let me tell you, there's two ways, two fatal errors that we, we, uh, we have common uh, to all of us. Two things that we tend to do when it comes to the spiritual world. The first failure is to dismiss everything spiritual as if it can be explained by practical, scientific realities. Okay? This is what a lot of us do. We just kind of neglect the spiritual realm, the spiritual reality that's spoken of in Scripture. In that vein of thought, many have taken these two texts from Luke 8 and Luke 9 and have explained them away with simple medicine. Okay? In Luke chapter 8, 
Jesus encounters a man who has schizophrenia. And he helps the man with schizophrenia. In chapter 9, Jesus encounters a man who has a son with epilepsy. And Jesus helps the boy who has epilepsy. That's how we explain the spiritual activity of these texts. Well, that will be all well and good except for a few very important points. First of all, the Bible says this is demonic activity. But more than that, we've got the real problem of the fact that Jesus has a conversation with these demons. Not only does He speak to the demons, but the demons, they speak to Him. We have to reconcile with that reality. And so we see that spiritual beings, angels and demons, spiritual reality is indeed true. It's revealed to us in Scripture. Now the opposite is also a fatal error. And that is the the way that some of us have tended to find angels and demons and make our whole world about angels and demons. Okay, I want to read all the apocryphal literature. I want to get into all the, the numbers and the meanings. And my whole world revolves around this sort of a fanti, a fantas, uh, fantasy world of angels and demons we, we recreate in our minds. Uh, that is distracting from ultimate things. The ultimate reality of the Lord Jesus Christ, His work in this world, the intention of God through His Word, and that also is a danger for us. We must admit that there's a spiritual reality, that there's a spiritual world, that there's spiritual activity in this world. As you look at this passage, it's very interesting here that Luke is speaking about these demons. It's not the first time that Luke mentions demons. It won't be the last time that Luke mentions demons, but one of the things I found interesting is that Luke's gospel mentions demons more than any other gospel. I I think that's kind of ironic because Luke was the doctor, okay? And if anybody was to avoid dealing with spiritual things, to find practical solutions for the things that he encountered in the world, it would be Luke, the medical doctor. And yet he mentions these two encounters that Jesus has with the demons. Now, if you look back at the passage in Luke 8, the first one that I read from, it's very interesting. Jesus has just calmed the storm on the sea. The next morning, the the boat parks in the land of Gergasa, the Gersenes. And here Jesus walks out onto the shore. Now, this is the land of Gentiles. These are Gentiles. Okay, now there's maybe a few Jews living there, but this is largely a Gentile population. The dead giveaway should have been for you that there's a herd of pigs that we wouldn't have found in Israel. Jesus walks out onto the land, and what does He encounter? A, a naked man who seems to be running around like a wild, crazy being. Okay? If there's anything to tell you that something is off, that there's something wrong, this would be a good indication. Now, Luke describes the man, and there's some strange things about this particular man. Uh, Not only was he walking around naked, but he lives in the burial grounds. He lives among the graveyard, which would have been a a filthy place at this particular time. It says that they had attempted at different times to, to bind him with shackles, but that the spirits within him gave him the strength where he broke free from the shackles and he escaped their bonds and he would, he would escape back into the desert and now he's living in the catacombs, the, the burial ground. Mark tells us in his gospel that this man had scars all over his body from the stones that he would use to cut himself. Uh, commentators comment about how this maybe was his way of trying to remove the spirits from within his body, clawing at his own skin. 
the picture of this man in Luke chapter 8 is a picture of pity. It's a sad existence. Everything about him is miserable. Very similar to the picture in Luke chapter 9. The misery depicted by the father of the son pleading with Jesus. This is my only son. And there's a spirit that grips him. It convulses him. The word that's used here in Luke is that it shatters him. I don't even know exactly what that means, but you get the picture. It's crumbling his body. It's making him to convulse. In Matthew's Gospel, the Father says to Jesus, it makes him convulse so often that it causes him to fall, fall into the fire and into the water. And the Father says it's as if the, the demon desires to kill his son. So the Father pleads with Jesus to remove this spirit from within him. And this morning, as we begin looking at this passage, as I said earlier, we must admit that there is a spiritual reality. It's easy for us. We're from a, a Scottish common-sense realist tradition. Everything for us has practical reasoning. We're logical people. And so for us, the spiritual reality isn't quite something we're comfortable with. And yet here it is presented to us in Luke chapter 8 and Luke chapter 9. Let me make just two brief observations about that. First of all, you might say, well, this doesn't happen today, does it? It doesn't seem to happen this way today, but none of us knows exactly what it looks like, the, the, the demonic activity or influence in this world. We know that these things are still happening, but not quite like this. And for very good reason, you see, we see a flurry of of angelic and demonic activity at the advent of Jesus because this is the coming of Christ. And just as the angels announce His coming at the beginning of the Gospel, we see a flurry of demonic activity. This is all in the providence of God. Just as God says to Satan in the book of Job, I permit you to have influence over uh, my servant Job, so God says to the demons here, I permit you as a demonstration of the power and the authority of the coming King. That the, the, the Christ, the Messiah, might be confirmed by His authority even over the demons. And so these particular events in Luke are very unique. Yes, we don't witness things like this today. Second thing, though, I think is worth pointing out from this text concerning the spiritual reality is just as there is a spiritual reality, there are also spiritual weapons and spiritual tools and spiritual resources. This is why the Apostle Paul speaks about the armor of God, right? Not a physical armor, a spiritual armor. The breastplate of righteousness, right? The sword, the Word of God. Some of those things are depicted in this passage. You think about Luke 9, the father comes to Jesus and he says, listen, your, your disciples, they couldn't cast out this demon. And here Jesus exhorts them, you, you faithless generation. But in Matthew's account of these events, Jesus says to them, to the disciples, listen, this type of demon can only be cast out with prayer. There in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus equips them with one of the tools for spiritual warfare. Do you realize that the spiritual warfare that we engage in, we've been given these weapons, these tools, these resources? The, the power of prayer, okay? In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus also references fasting, okay? He speaks about faith here, okay? Ye have little faith. The Father is the one who says in the Gospel of Matthew, Lord... 
I believe. Help my unbelief. Jesus speaks about faith being not only a gift of God, but a, a resource, a tool in the warfare that we engage in among, against principalities and powers that we can't witness with our eyes, and yet they are there at work. And so we've been given these tools. And that's the first point. There is indeed a spiritual reality. There's a lot that goes with that, but not enough time to speak about all of it this morning. So the second point that comes out of this passage is that Jesus is Lord even over the angels and the demons. Now this is important, okay, because if you remember, the middle part of Luke's gospel is really, the, the thrust of the middle part of this, this gospel is to affirm the authority and the power of the Lord Jesus, okay? So last week, we saw His power and authority over nature and creation. He says to the waves, stop, and they stop. This week, His authority and power is affirmed over heaven and hell. He has power over the angels and the demons. Most poignantly, we see that as we read in chapter 8, verse 28, the demons who have possessed this man, they say to Jesus, what have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? And I think it's in Mark's Gospel where they, Mark records that they say, what have you to do with us, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? That's an important recognition, I, I think, it's an important recognition by the demons. They identify Jesus as the Son of the Most High God, which is a divine title. They affirm who He is. And I think it's important because up until this point, we really haven't had many human beings, we haven't had any affirming so clearly the deity of the Lord Jesus. We've seen some people who beat around the bush. We've seen some passing references to it. But we have yet to hear a human being in the Gospel of Luke say to Jesus, you are the Son of the Most High God. You're the Son of God. Uh, Ligon Duncan, who's a, a pastor in our denomination, he was preaching on a, a passage from Matthew about demon possession. And he said that this title, Son of the Most High God, is significant. You might not realize it, but it's not used very often in the Gospels. It's almost never used. And if you go through and you... you you find each occurrence of this title, you'll find something very interesting, okay? Because with the exception of the people who mock Jesus on the cross and they say, save yourself, if you're the Son of God, save yourself, the only time that we ever have Jesus referenced as the Son of God in all of the Gospels is from spiritual beings, okay? The angels, at the beginning of the Gospel, they announce Jesus as the Son of God. The devil... Luke chapter 4 goes out into the wilderness. He's tempting Jesus. He calls him the Son of God, the Son of the Most High God. Twice in the Gospels, there are demons who do it. And the only other reference ever to Jesus being the Son of God is from the mouth of Jesus himself. That's it. And for me, that's significant, okay? Because you have humanity who's kind of slow to acknowledge the identity of Jesus. Like, they keep asking, uh, again, from last week, the same question. Well, who is this? But... The spiritual beings, the ones who have insight into heavenly things, they are the ones who acknowledge from the very beginning, this is the Son of God, Son of the Most High God. Now, there are the angels who affirm Christ's identity and they worship Him. There are the demons who affirm Christ's identity and they flee from Him. They cower at His sight, but all of them uniformly, they identify Jesus as the Son of God. That is so interesting, okay? And I think even today, there are many who stumble over that, right? 
There are many who will look at the Gospels and they will read about the Lord Jesus Christ and they will say, yeah, I get it, but He's not God. He never claimed to be God. And they, they continued to miss these blatant references to the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even the demons affirm His identity here in the passage. But there's another of other important observations from this text concerning the power, the authority, and the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me just kind of point them out really quick to you, okay? There's a bunch of them, and I just want to highlight them. First of all, in chapter 8, verse 31, the demons say to Jesus, don't throw us into the abyss, right? And, And there we've got the indication of the final authority of Jesus Christ, the sovereignty even over the demons. I love in Matthew's gospel, he says that that the demons say to Jesus, have you come here to torment us before the time? And that really begins to paint the picture, doesn't it? Because the demons understand that there's a judgment day. That there's one day in the future when the Lord Jesus returns, not only to judge human beings for sin, but to judge the principalities of this world. To cast them into the fiery pit to once for all deal finally with them. And the demons are asking the question, well, this isn't the final day, is it? Have you come here to torment us before the day of judgment? They realize that their days have been numbered and ordained by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he demonstrates his authority and sovereignty over them. Second observation is that Jesus easily cast out these demons. Were you amazed at all by the ease? Uh, by which Jesus casts out these demons. It doesn't appear that there's any problem for him, that there requires really any work on his behalf. This is very different than all of the sort of vivid illustrations we have uh, when we think about battles between light and dark. Uh, For instance, in our our books and movies that we watch, I think of uh, The Lord of the Rings. There's that image where Gandalf stands on that bridge, that monster that's coming up, and he, he takes his staff and he, he breaks the stone, and, but Gandalf falls into the hole, and it's a hard work for him. I'm sorry if my references to Lord of the Rings are not exactly correct. I don't fully understand or even know what I'm talking about, but I've seen that movie. The one, I've seen that one movie, okay? It's a hard work. That's not the depiction of Jesus in these stories. The the man, the wild man comes to him, the father pleads with him, and Jesus, he permits. He permits the demons to leave. He exercises authority with one word. It says in Luke chapter 9 that he rebukes the demons and they leave the boy, okay? There's a natural authoritative ease that Jesus has as he speaks a word and the demons, they listen, they conform. They they don't pose any resistance. We don't get the idea that it's like well, the demons tried to resist Jesus, but he, he prevailed against them. They understand that there is nothing that they can do to resist the power and the will of the Lord Jesus Christ. Third thing, just to mention that word in verse 32 of chapter 8, the word permitted is a very interesting word. It says that Jesus permitted them and the Greek word is a word that means a, uh, an unchallenged authority who allows a measure of freedom to someone who is beneath them. And at first I thought, okay, this is like a, a teacher and a child in a classroom, and the teacher permits the child to do something. But the more you read about this word, the more you find that the relationship is more like a, a warden and a prisoner, okay? 
and a prisoner who is in a jail cell, and the warden has complete unrivaled authority, and he may or may not, or she may or may not allow the prisoner to leave their cell or not to leave their cell, to go into the yard or not to go into the yard, to, to uh, eat or to not eat. That's the word permitted in this passage. And so it communicates to us that the Lord Jesus Christ has unrivaled, unchallenged authority over the demons who plead with him, hey, will you, will you allow us to do this one thing? And it's totally up to Jesus. That they have no influence over his decision. You see, the general disposition of both of these accounts is of natural authoritative ease on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about this. There are two worlds represented in these texts. There's the world of the, the Gersenes, the Gentiles, okay? And for them, the, the man who lived among them, possessed by these demons, he, he represented to them every spiritual power and authority that they had no idea uh, uh, about, but they knew that it existed, okay? And they witnessed in this man kind of a peculiar, strange, indescribable, but here it is before us, spiritual power and authority that was everything that they understood about the spiritual world, okay? He was powerful, and he was wild, and peculiar, and strange, and weird. Everything about it to them was the depiction of their spiritual understanding. The father, the Jewish father, is very different, okay? For him, his only son, the influence of these spirits on his only son uh, represented uh, torment and oppression, for him, his only experience with the spiritual world was one of slavery and of bondage. I'm sure that this father had been through various uh, 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 different processes trying to relieve his son of the suffering, that he had visited doctors, that he had gone to the temple to speak with the priests, that he had been to the synagogue. He had probably tried different uh, common uh, remedies for infirmities, and nothing had worked. And you see, the beauty of this passage is that Jesus gets off a boat in the land of Gergasa. He comes down off the mountain after the transfiguration. He comes into these two situations, into these two worlds, where these people had this whole worldview that had been shaped by their experience with the spiritual world. And he, he meets them, and by the word of his mouth, he undoes, undoes everything that they understood about the spiritual world. He rebuked the demons. He cast out the demons, sent them into the herd of pigs, and he changed forever the world of these two people. Now, I would say to you this morning, I think one of the takeaways for us is, is very simple. We ought not feel, uh, fear the spiritual world. We ought not fear the spiritual world, not because it doesn't exist, because it does. We often find some measure of peace acting like it doesn't exist, okay? That there's no demons, that there's no angels, that these things don't exist. Whatever I see with my eyes is what is real, and that is it, okay? That's how we find peace. But really, our peace should come from, as we look at this passage, understanding that all the principalities and powers of this world, everything that our eyes do not witness but we know exists, they all fall under the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. They all answer to Him. They're all in his prison. They all are controlled by the word of his mouth. 
I think about this, I, I think about children, okay? You children out there, if you children are like me when I was a child, okay, sometimes you have bad dreams, right? And I don't know what you dream about, but sometimes we dream about things in our imagination, monsters, menaces, whatever that is. Children, we ought to remind you time and time again that our Lord Jesus Christ has dominion and power even over the monsters and menaces of our imagination. The greatest things that we could concoct in our minds, the greatest fears, the darkest things that we could imagine, our Lord Jesus Christ has authority even over these. You see, it's very tempting in this world to believe that the forces of darkness are stronger than the forces of life. Don't believe that lie. With one little word, as Martin Luther said, with one little word, our Christ fells them. And he dismisses every evil principality and power. Our Jesus is sovereign. And the final point this morning I've included on your handout is that many prefer earthly gain even over eternal hope. Many prefer earthly gain even over eternal hope. I don't know if you noticed, but one of the biggest differences between these two texts was the response of the people. You see, in chapter 9, as you look at the second account, Jesus casts out this demon, and it says at the end of verse 42, Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, he healed the boy, he gave him back to his father, and all were astonished at the majesty of God. That's the response of the people who are watching in chapter 9. All were astonished at the majesty of God. The word there that's used for majesty is a Greek word that that communicates a, a visual a visual beholding of divine majesty. It's the same word that's used in the transfiguration, okay? You've got the transfiguration on the mount, uh, these beings that, that appear to be uh, heavenly or divine, and the word that, that's used to them is this word here, a perception of divine majesty. In chapter 9, it says of the people around this demon casting out that Jesus does, it says that they beheld the divine majesty of Jesus. That's really what's communicated here. I don't know whether that means that uh, there was like um, um, mass conversions or uh, that they all became followers of Jesus or they truly recognized who he was, but at the very least, they recognized something of the divine majesty of Jesus in chapter 9. Compare that to the response of the people in chapter 8 in the land of Gergasa. It says in verse 35, Then people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus, and they found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and he returned. And the last verse in that section says that the man, when he went away, uh, he was proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. So you compare this response of the people in chapter 8, you get a very different picture. You get a picture of a community of people who see the work that Christ has done and they say to Jesus, hit the road, Jack. Be gone. 
We want nothing to do with you. Remove yourself from here. As quick as you got off that boat, just as quick, get out of here. It's very interesting as you consider these people in chapter 8. The people in chapter 8, they were observing the work of Jesus and they realized very quickly that to be followers of Christ is a costly endeavor. To be followers of Christ was a costly endeavor. Mark, in his gospel, he says that the herd of pigs numbered nearly 2,000. That there was nearly 2,000 pigs that rushed down the hill and into the Sea of Galilee. That's a significant amount of pigs, okay? It's a, uh, it represents a lot of bacon. And I, and I don't mean, I, I told my wife I was going to tell this joke, and she said, you shouldn't. That's a corny joke. But um, a lot of bacon, and I don't mean the things that we eat for breakfast. I mean it represents a lot of money, okay? It represents a lot of money to the people. 2,000 pigs had to represent a community herd. I mean, there's no individual who has 2,000 pigs at this moment. These pigs represented maybe the life savings of the community. Maybe all of what they had was invested into this herd of pigs. And so there they go off the edge of the cliff. And the people very quickly say, whoa, 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 wait a second. This Jesus seems to be bad for our bottom dollar. We want nothing more to do with you. Please leave. John Oxenham, who was an early 20th century poet in the early 1900s, he depicted this in one of his poems. And I love the way he puts this. So let me read it to you. It's very short. John Oxenham said, Rabbi, be gone. Thy powers bring loss to us and ours. Our ways are not as thine. Thou lovest men, we swine. O get you hence, omnipotence, and take this full of thine. His soul? What care we for his soul? What good to us that thou hast made him whole, since we have lost our swine? See, these people in Gergasa, they were more concerned for their pigs than they were for the well-being of this man or for the well-being of their own souls. They were more, more concerned for their earthly gain, for their worldly goods. They perceived that the security that they had in this world through things like tradable goods and herds of pigs, things like good careers and nice 401Ks, that these things were most important to them. See, these people were being forced to make a choice, and the choice was very simple. Receive Jesus to walk and act among you, freeing people and preaching the gospel, but thereby risking your gain and your goods in this world. Or you can reject Jesus and keep your present but fading riches. They chose to lay up treasures on this earth where moth and rust destroy instead of laying up treasures in heaven. And this, brothers and sisters, is where this passage meets us in our world. The warning is for us, is it not? Will we love the sovereign Christ more than anything in this world or will we die with our toys and our trinkets? Does our life 
Our money and our time reflect a heart for others that desires to see Christ extend His reign in our hearts and in other hearts? Or do we have other priorities? Other things that seem so important to us to cling so tightly to. The Lord of heaven and hell, the Son of the Most High God, as, uh, as the demons call Him, uh, the visible representation of the majesty of God came not to be served though he should have been, but he came to serve. Now he calls each who would follow him to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow him. Do we choose our herd of pigs? Or do we choose the Lord Jesus Christ and his kingdom? It's the question we're left with as we leave this passage. Do we choose our herd of pigs? Or do we choose the Lord Jesus Christ and His kingdom? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank You for these passages. And I admit to You, Lord God, that we know very little concerning angels and demons. But I thank You that You have showed us that they do indeed exist, that there is indeed a spiritual world, and that we are in need of a spiritual Savior. And so we thank You for this beautiful picture of the saving work of Jesus who comes to find us in our pitiful estate, who removes the bonds and the slavery of sin, who frees us from the bondage to the prince of this world, and who renews us and restores us to our rightful standing as children of the Most High God. And so we ask, Lord God, that You would continue Your work here among us. We ask that You would glorify Yourself through these words. We ask that You would lift up Your Son, Jesus Christ, that He might be glorified and proclaimed in all the earth. We thank You and we praise Your name. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.